0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have the privilege of continuing our three-part series on the Reformation. We're in our second part this morning. Uh, This morning's text will be Galatians chapter 1. And it's the whole chapter, but don't worry, we're not going to exegete the whole chapter so that we're here all day. Uh, We're just going to highlight sections of it. And you can find it in the Pew Bible just before you, underneath the chair on page 973, if you're using that. So let's go to Galatians 1, and let's read the text. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith He once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have given us your word revealed in Scripture. You have given it to us to stand on, to preach and teach and correct and rebuke, and so that we may have everything to grow up mature in righteousness, and we praise you for that, Lord. Lord, this morning as we open it, as we read it, as it's preached, I pray that we would hear the truth, that we would listen and obey it, and as we hear it, it would cause us to worship you because we delight in how wonderful you are, especially as we consider your glorious gospel, the good news. Lord, I pray that you would use this time in the Word to awaken hearts and to refresh and warm hearts this morning. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So as I said, we're continuing in our three-part series on the Reformation. Last week was the the first, and Pastor Luke took us through Romans 1, 16 through 17, and talked about how the Reformers rediscovered these truths that were buried about justification and being counted righteous in Christ. Uh, Today, though, we move on and we ask the question, how do we respond to the Reformation today? Is it over, or are we still protesting and reforming? All you have to do is Google Protestant Reformation, and you're going to find a lot of varying opinions as to how we should look at the Reformation today. Pope Francis is quoted in an address in Sweden, uh, an ecumenical prayer service, where he addressed a Catholic and Lutheran audience. He says, We have the opportunity to mend a critical moment of our history by moving beyond the controversies and disagreements that have often prevented us from understanding one another. While the Pope acknowledges divisions, he sounds optimistic that we can get beyond these controversies and we just need to understand each other. Gillian Kingston, who is vice president of the World Methodist Council, has this to say about the Reformation. She says, as grandchildren of the Reformation... Methodists have never experienced a split from Rome and the two churches have learned much from each other's traditions over a half a century of ecumenical dialogue. We don't have any history, any doctrine, or any event to resolve. We have in common a sense of holiness, not meaning we're so heavenly minded that we're of no no earthly use, but rather it is a dedication to God and to the work of God. And so this person is saying that our denomination didn't exist back then, so there is no split, and we don't have to talk about disagreeing over doctrines because we weren't around back then. And she says, we're actually about the exact same thing, so let's move forward together. In the church today, there is a widespread belief that the Reformation is just over. The popular way of thinking seems to be that enough time has passed, so we don't have to be mad at each other anymore. Let's just move forward together. And it's not uncommon to hear things like the, the popular saying, time heals all wounds. So it's okay. But to quote Michael Horton, he says, one thing that time can never heal is error. So here's how we ought to think about the Reformation today. We still are protesting and we are always reforming. The church is still protesting. We as a church are still protesting. We are always reforming. You need to know this morning that we are still not together with the Roman Catholic Church. There are many, many reasons for this. We're gonna focus on two big ones that kind of get to the heart of the matter this morning. And before going any further, I do wanna mention this, that we love and are to love our Catholic friends. We are to love them. If you're here this morning and you're Catholic and you're visiting us, I want you to know that we love you. We want you to listen to this message and really consider these things this morning. And we want to continue this dialogue and this discussion, but we love you. And number two, I, I, I believe that there are uh, people in the Church of Rome who are Christians. Okay? And, and so I'm not saying there can't be any Christians in the Roman Catholic Church. I believe that there are. But if they are, it's only for one of two reasons. Either one, they just don't understand the gospel that Rome preaches— or two, they understand it, but they're rebelling against the teachings of the Catholic Church. And if, if, you, if, if you are one of those people who is in it and just wants to stay in it for the sake of staying in it, I would encourage you to get out and go to a church where they preach the life-giving, grow, life-growing truth of the gospel. And again, I say these things this morning not because I'm all about going around bashing people. I don't want to do that. If you know me, you know I don't even like to really argue with people. Um, but there is a lot at stake in what is the gospel. And so we, we, I, I, I preached this message this morning because I care about people. There's a lot at stake. And I want you to hear what the Bible has to say about the truth of the gospel. So back to the message. Here are two main things. The two main reasons that we are still protesting is, number one, we protest Rome's claim to have an equal authority to Scripture, and number two, we protest Rome's gospel of justification by faith and works together. This morning, we'll be considering what uh, Scripture has to say about these two things in the book of Galatians, and mainly in Galatians chapter 1. And you should know that in the Galatian churches, there was a problem that was very similar to the problem of the Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation, um, In his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul addresses these issues that had come about because of a group called the Judaizers. And there's two things I want you to know this morning about the Judaizers. Number one is that the Judaizers were professing Christians who denied Paul's apostolic authority, and they denied his message. And they claimed to to align themselves with the Apostles who were back in Jerusalem with the Jews, and they claimed that that message contradicted Paul's message. So they're saying, we align with them, we think you're wrong. And number two, the Judaizers were Jews who believed that in order for the Gentiles to be saved, they had to be circumcised. So they couldn't be justified and right before God and Christ unless they trusted in Christ and got circumcised. They were basically requiring any Gentiles who came to Christ in order to come to Christ that they would come under the old covenant uh, completely, the entire thing. And so they taught, as Rome did and still does, that a believer could only be declared right with God through a combination of Christ's works and their own works. And, and basically, that's in that system, it's saying that Christ is not sufficient. You have to bring something to the table to be right with God. So in the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to this young church where these, these, uh, the Judaizers had come in and they were teaching these things, and they were against Paul. And in chapter 1, Paul goes, I don't know if you noticed this or not, Paul goes to great lengths to show that he is not going off of the traditions of man or the teachings of man or anything like that. He goes to great lengths to show that this is not my message. It's not anyone else's message. This is Christ's message. I got it from Christ, from God himself. And so we see things like uh, in verse one, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And in verse 11, he says, the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. In verse 12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 16 and 17, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. You notice at the end there, he was so... He knew that he had encountered the risen Christ. He didn't even go and check out the other apostles and say, hey, am I doing the right thing here? No, he was confident. He went out and ministered. Later on, years down the road, he he met with them a little bit, but not many of them, and he went back to his work because he was confident that he had been commissioned by Christ himself. Not any traditions of apostles, not any traditions of men, not his own making this up. It was from Christ. They might be thinking, okay, that's great, but what does that have to do with the Reformation and how we should look at the Reformation today? Here's how it relates. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the church's traditions are of equal authority with Scripture. In Catholicism, the pope is considered to be a successor of the apostles, namely Peter, and if the pope makes a decision for the the church— It is to be seen as equally authoritative to the word of God, and people are to obey it in Rome as if God had spoken. That is what the church teaches even today in its most recent Catholic catechism. Here's what it says in Article 2 of that catechism on the transmission of divine revelation. I think it's worth looking at these to go to the source itself rather than just saying these things. So in Section 82, it's written, The church to whom the transmission an interpretation of revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Listen to this. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiment of devotion and reverence. Equal devotion and reverence as the Holy Scriptures. Section 100 goes on to say the task of interpreting the word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the pope and to the bishops in communion with him. And then it goes on, and I'm not going to read all these, to say that the, the, the bishops as well share in this infallibility as they teach what the church has come up with in their traditions. Um, and so what I want you to see is here this, this morning Here's people claiming to be of apostolic succession that the torch has been passed from apostles down to pope, down to pope, down to pope, all throughout the church age. This is going to happen. And what I want you to see is that the way that they're treating God's word and the way that they're living and and exercising authority, of the church is not in line with scripture at all. And it's not in line with how the apostles exercise their authority in their ministries. Um, The apostles in... word of God, you see it very clearly that they considered themselves under the scriptures. The scriptures were their final authority. They did not see themselves as equal or even above it in that they could change things over time. They knew that they were merely laying the foundations of the church by teaching Christ's teachings. Biblically, an apostle is one who was called and commissioned by Christ himself and sent out to proclaim his message. Nowhere in scripture does it lay out the continued succession of infallible apostles or popes, but rather, as we read the scriptures, we see the apostles asserting that it, it scripture, uh, excuse me, we see them asserting that scripture is God breathed. We see them making their appeal to the churches using scriptures. We see them relying on the word of God to work powerfully to change and sustain people in the church. And we see them pointing the church, to the scriptures when dealing with man's traditions and how to handle them. We see that in Acts twenty twenty nine, where it says, I, the apostles writing say, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own slaves, or sorry, from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw you away, you and the disciples, away after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that three years I did not cease night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And listen to this. This is his direction. There's all these different thoughts coming in, traditions of men and what they're doing. And he says in verse 32, I now commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He points them to the word of God. And we see also in 2 Peter 1.20, Peter says no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is very clear there that it's not authoritative traditions of man that are to dictate what we do but it's the scriptures alone because that is how God has spoken to us. And so looking at the Reformation, this was a time when Luther and many others who were in the Roman Catholic Church at the time, they started reading their Bibles. And as they did, they began to realize that these traditions were twisted and they were not aligning with Scripture. So they saw the error of Rome's way and they began teaching and looking to the Scriptures as their final authority. And we looked at the Catholic catechism, but I want you to see the difference in a catechism that stemmed from the Reformation, looking at the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Not that these are authoritative with Scripture, but look at how the way the church was structured changed because of the Reformation. In paragraph four, it says, "...the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or the church," But wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received as the Word of God. Stark contrast there. And then paragraph nine that goes on to say the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. It's not some special person in the church that knows how to interpret this right. It is Scripture itself. So you read something in Scripture, you want to gain understanding. You go to more scripture and you try to understand where it might talk about that issue in different ways and that's how you understand scripture. You let scripture interpret scripture. Now I know that there are authority structures that are laid out by God in families and communities and in churches but every earthly authority is to submit ultimately to the word of God as their final authority over all things that includes any church leader. They are under the word of God and so we cannot stand with Rome because she sees the Pope's words and her traditions as having equal authority with scriptures. And these traditions, if you think about it, they've, they've produced a lot of unbiblical doctrines over the years, things like indulgences, things on how Mary is viewed and how the sacraments are viewed. And we'll get into more of that as well. But while it's important that we know to reject this Roman view of authority, I don't think a lot of us are here this morning thinking, wow, wow. We're in danger of coming over that type of teaching or I'm really tempted to believe that. So to bring it up to today, I think the the great battleground for the truth about authority in modern evangelicalism is not so much about a system that's over here oppressing us, it's a lot more about inside of us. Because I think that we've replaced a lot in a lot of ways in our culture, sola scriptura or scripture alone with sola adfectus or feelings alone. Feelings have become the sole authority for many, and thus saith the Lord has taken back seat to, I just feel, statements. And so things like, I just feel like God wouldn't tell those people they can't do that. Or I just feel like God is talking to me and telling me he wants me to be happy. Or I just feel like God speaks to me in nature more than he does when I'm in the Bible, so I go fishing every Sunday and never go to church. I just feel like you shouldn't talk about sin I know the Bible talks about staying together, but I just feel like I need to leave. And so on and so forth. And if I were to live by this, this principle, I would say, I just feel like I should be able to eat bacon every single meal because I love it. And the, the, the funny thing, and it's not even funny about these I feel statements, is it sounds so neutral. You can say it in a nice way, but I just feel... But the truth is, at the end of the day, if you're saying, I just feel whatever, and it's against what God's word teaches, you're in sin, and you're in rebellion against God's word. And it's a sin that needs to be repented of. And so today there are many in the church asserting themselves and their feelings as the final authority. And in the meantime, their Bibles sit on their shelves only to be brought out to be misquoted to fuel whatever their own desires are that they feel they need and, and, and so that's a big error of our, of our culture. And I think many of us get sucked into it as well. And, and really what, what, what's happening there is we're, we're, we're demonstrating a low view of God and, and his words that he has spoken, which are scriptures. And we're instead saying, I'm going to elevate myself over that. And it doesn't work. It just leads us in sin. And that's only going to be a slippery slope and more sin. And, and you don't want to go down that road. And so... The Almighty King of the universe has spoken to us in his word. Let us repent of asserting ourselves and our feelings in the place of God that we may open our Bibles and hear the words of life, the words of the gospel that can create life and sustain life. And so just as Paul urged the Galatians to reform the church according to the word of God, and just as Luther and the reformers encouraged Let's reform the church according to the word of God. We too, today, we need to reform our own hearts according to the word of God. And we need to always be reforming the church so that we are in line with the word of God because we so easily go off our feelings, get off track. And we need to be students of the scripture and we need to submit to the scriptures with joy, knowing that God has our greatest joy in mind when we submit to the scriptures. And so moving on to the second point here, it's really Rome's view of her own authority that's led her to, to go away from the truth of the gospel. Her own traditions have taken her so far from the truth that they've actually condemned the biblical gospel of justification by faith alone, and they've actually condemned anyone who says they believe in the gospel of justification by faith alone. And so relying on their own authority, they've developed a gospel of justification by faith and works and I want to go into a little bit talking about how that system works because I think it's, it's worth taking the time to have an understanding of the Catholic system of justification. And I got this analogy from another pastor. I think it's really good. And so what I want you and it's, it's kind of funny because it's crude, it's, it begins with saying, think of a bathtub. I don't know. I think it's a good analogy. But picture a bathtub, and at the top, there's a red line that runs across at the fill mark. And, and on that fill mark, it says justification all the way around. In the Catholic view of justification, when a baby is born, he has no righteousness applied to his account. So picture a bathtub that's empty, the plug is out, there's no righteousness. That's a picture of that child's righteousness. Upon being baptized, though, in the Catholic church, that baby is said to be born again when the Spirit enters them. They're born again. And the tub is actually, the plug is put in by the act of their baptism. And the righteousness level, the water fills up right to that red line and they are considered justified. But we all know that as everyone grows, just like we do, there's sin. And every time that person sins, that plug is lifted and some trickles out. And if there's a really big sin, that plug is taken out and all the righteousness completely drains out so that there's nothing there at all. And the only thing that can put the plug back in the tub is if they, uh, someone does works of confession or penance or the other sacraments. That's how the plug can come back in. And the, and the thing is, as they do those things, it's not going to fill the, to the line again. It's just going to be little trickles. And so as those little trickles fill, it's something, but it's really not much at all. And so what happens is most—the common Catholic at the end of their life— has not gotten close to that line of justification. And that's where the the doctrine of purgatory comes from, is that, well, they didn't quite make it, so we got to get them to the red line. So they go to purgatory where they burn off the remaining righteousness. Could be 100 years, could be 500 years, could be 1,000 years. And then finally, when that's all done, then they can stand before God and God can declare them righteous. It's worth noting that uh, there are considered to be certain saints in Catholicism that have lived to... uh, fill that level to the line. And in fact, some who are really saints like Mother Teresa and things like that, they live such righteous lives that it actually overfilled the tub. And Rome then as a church has a surplus of righteousness on her hands. And so knowing that, they thought, what can we do with the surplus of righteousness? And they thought, I know what we'll do. We're going to sell this righteousness in the form of indulgences to take time off of people's time, you know, to take time off of people's Uh, stay in purgatory. So that's how indulgences started. They were essentially selling a surplus of righteousness to take time off of purgatory so that unrighteousness could be burned off and they could enter God and stand in his presence counted righteous. So Paul's concern for the Galatian church was this. He was concerned that the Judaizers were teaching a gospel of works and basically they were adding human works to Christ's work in order for one to be justified. And I want you to listen to how sharply he responds to the Galatians in verses 6 through 9. I'm going to read it. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ." But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And so we shouldn't take it lightly when church leaders are preaching a different gospel because the scriptures don't take it lightly. Paul doesn't say, it's okay, Judaizers, brothers, it's fine, let's move on. He calls them out as the ones who are troubling the church, the ones who have distorted the gospel, and he says they are the ones that we should let be accursed. And this is really strong language. It might be some of the strongest in the New Testament. And Paul's saying, let these false teachers, the false gospel teachers, be accursed. He's saying, let them go to hell to be judged. That is strong. Why would Paul do that to these teachers? He does it because of what's at stake. If these teachers come in and they teach, you can be justified, yes, in Christ, but your works, it's potentially sending people to hell because those people will be trusting in their works to be saved. Imagine this. Imagine a person standing before the judgment seat of Christ before entering eternity, and there's Jesus on the throne, and he's got the scars in his hands and his feet, and he says, okay, tell me why I should allow you to enter my kingdom. And the person says, well, what you did was great, so that, but also it couldn't cover it all, so obviously the works I did as well count for something. So you should let me in based on, yeah, what you did, but also my works thinking about someone coming before God in that manner, it makes me cringe. It makes me sick to think that they had heard about Christ and what he had done, but they had heard that Christ wasn't enough. And to add their own works on that, to be right before God, it makes me sick. And so look at Galatians 5 at what Paul has to say about someone trusting in their works to be saved. He says in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, Paul is saying, if you look to your works to make you righteous, then you can forget about Christ's righteousness at all. And he says, by the way, if, if, if you are relying on your works, you better do every single work perfectly because if you don't, the system crumbles and you cannot be justified before God. And he goes on to warn them in verse 4. He says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And in verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. He's saying, when when you're considering being justified before God, all those little things you do, they count for nothing. In verse 12, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would just emasculate yourselves. And I don't think I have to say anything more about that. The scriptures are clear. The eternal Christ did not take on a body and face the full judgment of God to make Christians righteous only in part. Jesus died, and as it says in the book of Psalms, he drank the full cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. That means not even a little drip drop left in there, all completely gone. He did not do that so you could be counted righteous in part. He did it so he could declare you completely just in Christ, completely righteous in Christ right here this morning as you sit. And so to go back to the tub analogy, Christian— When you were born again, when you heard the true gospel of salvation by grace alone, when you trusted in Christ, in the true gospel, the muck that filled the tub was completely washed clean by Christ and his blood. The plug was placed back in by Christ. And the ever-flowing fountain of Christ's righteousness began flooding the tub with immeasurable volumes of righteousness that will flow from now through all of eternity. And to get a picture of what this is like, picture your bathtub at home, and now picture Niagara Falls running into it forever. That is how you have been counted righteous, with that amount of righteousness. And so do you see how silly it is that if you were to look at that picture and come with a teaspoon of righteousness, which you don't have, by the way, if you were to come up with a teaspoon of righteousness and put it in, what is that going to do? The whole Niagara Falls is flowing. Christ's righteousness is flowing like that. There's nothing you can do to attribute to your righteousness in order to be justified. It is a slap in the face to Christ who was eternal and existed forever and he, he, he became a man to be judged for your sin and to count that righteousness to you. It's a slap in his face. No, 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 you can't give me that gift. I got to bring Something you've got nothing, you can't bring it anyway. He did it all. And so if you sit here this morning and you have trusted in Christ through hearing the true gospel, you have been counted 100% righteous, which is amazing because we wake up and we sin every day and we fight that sin and we wrestle and we struggle, but we can always look to this truth that if we are in Christ and we're truly trusting in the gospel, you have been declared righteous. Righteous, right now, you have. There's nothing you can do to add to it. What would you want to add to that? Nothing. And so Rome's response to the biblical gospel of justification by faith alone is to anathematize the gospel. That means they've condemned the gospel, the true gospel of justification by faith alone and those who believe in it. If you look at the the Council of Trent, which is an older document, it says these things in it. And and, and Rome has never rescinded this document, and so it's binding in Catholicism today. And here's what it has to say about believing in justification by faith alone it says in, in Canon 9 if anyone says that a sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. And again, that's let him be condemned. If anyone says that justifying faith, and this is canon twelve, if any if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone that justifies us, let him be anathema. And in Canon 24, if anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of its increase, let him be anathema. And so what that's saying right there is if you don't attribute your works to your salvation and only say they're a result of your salvation, you can be condemned. And it goes on and on. And, and those are things we Hold to those are things that scripture teaches. We hold to them dearly. We stake our lives on it. And Rome has said, let let those doctrines be condemned and let those who believe them be condemned. And the Council of Trent goes on to anathematize or condemn these teachings and people who believe in them 33 times just on justification by faith alone. So, how are we to respond to the Reformation today, these truths of justification? For starters, we should stand firm in the truth of the gospel of justification by Christ alone without wavering. And this one's a little harder. We must bring the true gospel to our friends who are still in the Catholic Church. We must do so prayerfully, trusting in the power of the gospel to open their eyes and bring about salvation. And of course, we don't do this arrogantly thinking, I'm better than you because that's just ridiculous to think that Christ died and this flow of righteousness is for us and to think we can be puffed up about that. We're just beggars. We found a place to eat and we're showing other people. We're bringing them, come on, come and see this. Christ will fill you. He will satisfy you. We can't do that arrogantly. And also, we can certainly partner with the Catholic Church on things like social issues such as abortion and whatnot that promote the common good of man. But when it comes to partnering together for ministry and proclaiming the gospel, we can't partner with them. We can't partner because it's a different gospel. It's not the true gospel that they're preaching. And so we, we can't join with that. And so even though in our hearts we don't want to, it may seem like the most loving thing to do to just all hold hands and sing kumbaya and say we're all together, but it's not. Because if people are believing in their own works and people are preaching the gospel of work salvation, they're sending people to hell. And we don't want to just pretend, oh, that's okay, it's all great. No, that's not the loving thing to do. We want to lovingly talk to them in a winsome, humble way about the true gospel that Jesus paid it all. And you don't have to try to work to be right with God and you don't have to be uncertain if you'll stand before God one day and be counted Right. You can know right now, because Jesus' righteousness is enough. It's more than enough to count you righteous. And so it's good that Rome asks the question, what must I do to be saved? But they come up with the wrong answer. And sort of thinking about the Reformation today, I don't think there's many of us who are really concerned that we're, we're under Rome's teachings on this. So if we, if we fast forward to today and we think about, okay, how does this doctrine of justification come into play today? What's one of the big issues today? I think one of the big issues today is few in modern evangelicalism, fewer and fewer are even asking the question, what must I do to be saved? But rather more and more asking the question, what can I do to be a better person and to be a happier person? And that's sort of the culture here in America in evangelical Christianity. And it's, it's increasing And so we must never stop reforming in accordance with the scriptures and the true gospel because otherwise we too will fall into these errors of the culture. We must continue to evaluate the ideas of our day and resources of the day according with the scriptures. And it's really sad, but we live in an age where you walk into the Christian bookstores and there's so much junk that is peddling this exact thing, the gospel of nice and just be a better person and just feel good about yourself, and you don't hear about the glory of God, but rather the glory of man, and you don't get pointed to Christ who can save you and sustain you, but you get pointed to different things you can do to feel better about yourself. And there's a low view of God and a high view of man in so many resources today. And it's probably been true of of all ages, but today we especially see that, and they're so easily accessible. And so we must continue to reform ourselves, examining the books we buy in accordance with Scripture. We must continue examining the church and reforming her in accordance with Scripture. And I hope that as we do that, we we are faithful in guarding the good deposit of the gospel so that as people come to us, and maybe they start by asking, what can I do to be a better person? What can I do to be happier? We get them to a place by sharing the gospel where they are asking what must I do to be saved? And when they ask that, we we know our scripture, we know the word, and we are able to say, you can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as recorded in the holy authoritative scriptures alone. And so church, how should we respond to the Protestant Reformation 500 years after Luther nailed his 95 theses? We we still are in protest of Rome's teaching of authority and her condemnation of the true gospel. And in the spirit of the reformers, we must always be reforming both personally and in the church in accordance with the Holy Scriptures. And so to end, I'd like to say we, this is how we respond. We are still protesting and we are always reforming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your son Jesus Christ and for sending him. Thank you that it is only by his righteousness that we could ever stand before you, and there's nothing we could bring. Lord, we see how foolish it is to try to bring anything to stand before you when we see this beautiful picture of the eternal Christ who died in our place so that we could be counted righteous with his righteousness, which is more than enough. Thank you. Lord, give us wisdom that we would be a people of the book. That we would read our scripture daily and it would stir our hearts with a fear of God and a desire for you that we would delight in you and and desire to obey you, God. Grow us in our understanding of your word so that we may be wise. We may grow up in maturity and we may be guarding the good deposit so that generation after generation, people continue to do this and the gospel is proclaimed and made known. And we look at the Reformation and we know that your church will not fail. Your gospel will not fail. So we thank you that we have that, the reminder that it will not fail. Your, your good news will go on forever throughout all eternity. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.